0: A recent Barna study said that one of the major reasons students leave the faith is that, and I quote, the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. In her book, Total Truth, Nancy Piercy suggests that students haven't been taught how to doubt their faith. And she observes, young believers have not been taught how to develop a biblical worldview, Young believers need a brain religion, training in worldview and apologetics to equip them to analyze and critique the competing worldviews they'll encounter when they leave home. And if students are not equipped in this way, and if the church really does feel unfriendly to those who doubt, then we have got a problem on our hands. I want to talk about doubt this morning for the time we have remaining. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 if you will. Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 27. Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 27. Okay, now just let me read this to you. <clears throat> When they came to the other disciples, they being Jesus and Peter and James and John, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the, father's, uh, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Notice the context. This event immediately follows the transfiguration experience. Such a beautiful experience spiritual experience a spiritually powerful and meaningful and beautiful experience and then just like that jesus and his disciples are thrown into the situation of chaos and darkness i wonder if we can relate a little so we have this father and he basically says to jesus please heal my son if you're if you can please heal my son and jesus says i can Heal your son. All you need to do is believe. And the man essentially responds by saying, I want to believe. I believe. I'm trying to believe. But I'm filled with doubts. Help my unbelief. I want to highlight three things from this passage this morning. First, we see the power of Jesus. Secondly, we see the nature of of doubt and thirdly the hope of the cross it might be better to add descriptive words if you're into that kind of a thing so it'll go like this number one the trustworthy power of jesus secondly the don't freak out about it just yet nature of doubt and thirdly the incredibly liberating hope of the cross So we ready? First, the power of Jesus. Would you look at the dialogue? Verse 22, this dad exposes his doubt right away and says, if you can do anything, please help. He doesn't fully trust Jesus. He's not sure that Jesus is actually powerful enough to help him. After all, nobody else was able to, we saw in verse 18. This guy doubts Jesus' power, but as he finds out, and as we can find out, there is no need to doubt Jesus' power. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a powerful dude who exercises demons sometimes. He's the eternal creator of all things in the flesh. That's what he claims to be. And so Jesus responds, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. There's a story in Mark chapter 1, you might remember, about a man who didn't doubt Jesus' power, but he doubts Jesus' compassion. He says to Jesus, he's a leper, and he says, if you're willing, you can help me. And our father in Mark 9 is saying, if you're able... Will you help me? The man in Mark 1 essentially says, I know you could if you would, but you probably won't. And the man in Mark 9 is saying, I know you would if you could, but you probably can't. In each case, Jesus demonstrates both his power and his compassion. In each case, he is both willing and quite able to bring healing And restoration, too often students doubt Jesus' power or compassion. They'll feel so guilty about their sin, which is good. And they'll they'll, they'll realize how unworthy they are of forgiveness, which is good. And so they'll say, Jesus couldn't possibly forgive me which is bad. I'm just such a bad person. I've done so many bad things. Jesus is either not powerful enough or not compassionate enough to actually love and forgive me. Do you know what I want to say to such a doubting student? There, there, no. Don't you see? Haven't you learned anything from the scriptures? Jesus neither lacks power nor compassion. He is far more powerful and far more compassionate than you could possibly imagine. And as soon as you say, oh, well, he couldn't possibly forgive me, you've just given yourself way too much credit. It sounds humble, right? It's not. It's not humble. Because you're actually saying, Jesus Maybe the all-powerful, all-loving, eternal creator of the universe, the eternal son of God, powerful enough to heal and forgive a lot of broken, sinful people, but he's just not powerful enough to heal and forgive and change me. And underneath all of that, you're actually saying in your heart that you believe Salvation is based on your performance. You're actually saying in your heart that you believe you cause your own salvation, but you don't. 1 Peter 1, 3, for one, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And for many students who go on to reject their faith after growing up and learning all about it, I wonder if they've actually rejected something other than the gospel. Due to the blinders of sin and unbelief, I wonder if the actual good news of God's grace in Christ was never truly grasped in the first place. And so what you're rejecting now is simply some kind of works-based, performance-based view of salvation that constantly left you feeling guilty and not good enough. The kind of view of salvation that every other religion on the planet contains. And you've missed the point. Friends, graduates, don't miss the goodness of the good news. Salvation is the gift of God, Paul says in Ephesians 2. It's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. It's not anything you did. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So stop doubting Jesus' power and compassion. I don't care what you've done. I don't. The more broken and messed up you are, the more glorious uh, and radical and profound and beautiful your healing and transformation will be by God's grace. Jesus' power is trustworthy. It is more than enough for all of your weakness, all of your sin, all of your struggle, all of your mistakes. It's more than enough for your weak, struggling faith. Paul agrees, and that's why he says in 2 Corinthians, God told me my grace is sufficient. You. My power is made perfect in weakness. So, struggling student who doubts Jesus' power or compassion, or struggling anybody who doubts that, your forgiveness is already secured if you'll only embrace it. No matter how far you've fallen, I can promise you that Jesus has gone further so that you can be rescued and forgiven. Do you really believe that, or do you doubt? So secondly, let's look at doubt. Let's look at the reality of doubt. Let's look at the nature of doubt. Oz Guinness, in his book called God in the Dark, says, If our faith is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what clearly was not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith grows stronger still. Doubts are a window of opportunity. If handled rightly and honestly, they can lead to a deeper, stronger, more intellectually satisfying faith. Which is why in his book called Doubting, Alistair McGrath puts it like this, doubt is an invitation to grow in faith and understanding rather than something we need to panic about or get preoccupied with. Richard Dawkins is a brilliant physicist and a very vocal atheist today. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in that book, Dawkins says, Christianity teaches that unquestioned faith is a virtue. No, it doesn't. Dawkins continues and says, Christianity teaches that you don't have to make the case for what you believe. Yes, you do. Remember 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give reasons for the hope that is in you when someone asks. Perhaps too many Christians actually believe what Dawkins says, that unquestioned faith is a virtue, and so doubts, when they come, are suppressed. They're not talked about. You better not admit that you're struggling with doubt, especially not in church. Now parents... This is a challenge to use these times when, if and when they come with your students. Use these times even if and when they come for yourself. Don't run from them. Don't suppress them. Don't hide from them. Don't come to church and pretend everything's all right when you're just being eaten up inside because you have these questions and you don't think you're allowed to have these questions. Don't do that. And in this passage, we can see such a vivid picture of what doubt is like. And this dad becomes vulnerable and admits his doubt. And so this is really the beefiest part of the sermon this morning. We'll break it up into three parts. This is point number two, three subpoints. Number one, what doubt is. Number two, why we doubt. And number three, how to deal with doubt. What doubt is, why we doubt, how to deal with doubt. So first, let's define it. Our English word doubt is rooted in a Latin word, that is rooted in an Aryan word that means two. Two. To believe is to be in one mind about trusting something is true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. So to doubt is to waver between the two. To believe and disbelieve at the same time. To be in two Minds, And we see this so clearly in this dad's fascinating confession here. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And with this plea, he's claiming to both believe and not believe. He's in two minds. He's caught between them. This tells us something huge. Doubt is not unbelief. Os Guinness explains, Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief, so that it is neither of them wholly, and it is each only partly. This distinction is absolutely vital because it uncovers and deals with the first major misconception of doubt, the idea that we should be ashamed of doubting because... Doubt is a betrayal of faith and a surrender to unbelief. Guinness says no misunderstanding causes more anxiety and brings such bondage to sensitive people in doubt. So there is clearly a danger in being too hard on doubt. But don't miss this. There's also a real danger of being too soft on doubt. Doubt of being flippant, of inviting it in your house and making it feel right at home, giving it a cup of tea. Understanding that doubt is not the same as unbelief keeps us from the extreme of being too hard on doubt or freaking out about it. But at the same time, understanding that doubt can naturally lead to unbelief keeps us from being flippant. It's a serious matter. So much so that James calls a doubting man a double-minded man. There's our definition again, by the way. Unstable in all his ways, James 1.8. It's serious, but it's a window of opportunity. So why do we doubt, secondly? If you remember, Jesus asked Peter this very question. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, of all things, in the middle of a big storm. And Peter, as the brave and courageous disciple he is, he jumps out of the boat and he begins walking on the water toward Jesus. But what happened? He got scared. He began to sink. And Jesus looked at him and asked this piercing question, Peter, why do you doubt? It says in Matthew 14. And the answer is that for Peter... The reality of the storm became greater than the reality of Jesus. The same thing is happening here for our father in Mark chapter 9. The reality of his storm, a son in desperate need of spiritual healing, has become greater than the reality of Jesus, greater than the reality of Jesus' power over the situation. We all go through times like this. There are seasons in our faith. There are times when we feel a closeness to God and everything is just going great. We don't have any big issues. But then there are other times. Storms come. And they can shake up our faith and they can cause us to doubt. Sometimes we simply struggle with understanding a doctrine, or accepting uh, truth. And so we begin to doubt the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. Whatever the case, it always comes down to this. Who is the ultimate authority in deciding what's true and what to believe? There are just two options. Either you'll trust God and his revealed truth as he has revealed it to us By way of divine condescension in nature and certainly in Scripture and in Christ. That's the first option. You either trust God and His truth or you trust yourself. Those are the two options you have. How can an all-good and all-powerful God allow evil, you ask, and you get grumpy about it, and it causes you to question your faith, and you're all upset When a question like this causes you to doubt your faith, it comes down to these two positions. No, you say, I can't believe this. I know that they taught me this in church. I know that the Bible says this is true, but I simply can't accept it. And you've taken on the mindset. If I can't make sense of it, well, then it simply can't be true. You've become... Autonomous. You've become your own highest authority in understanding truth. Question Do you really trust yourself that much? Do you really have that much faith in your own mental capacities to think that you are capable, as this neutral, autonomous mind who can see all things, to come to know the real truth? In a sermon on the Doubting Thomas story in John 20, Spurgeon said, Doubt thee, my Lord? I could doubt all except thee and doubt myself most of all. Spurgeon didn't trust himself that much. And whether you have that much faith in yourself or in God's revelation, you have faith in something. Too often, people assume that when it comes to doubting your faith, the issue is faith versus reason. And it's this great battle between faith and reason. It's not. The issue is always faith versus faith. Always. British missionary Leslie Newbegin puts it well. He served in India for many years, and he says, my doubt rests upon a faith commitment. It is, of course, possible to doubt some beliefs, but only on the basis of other beliefs, which I do not doubt, at least at the time of doubting these other beliefs. So Newbegin says, Doubt, therefore, presupposes faith. See, every doubt is simply an alternate belief. Or every doubt, every doubt is an alternate belief. Every doubt is based on an alternate belief at the bottom. Every position, every worldview is a set of assumptions held by faith. Unbelief is not neutral. Unbelief is not neutrality awaiting evidence. It's a faith commitment of its own. Atheist Richard Dawkins inadvertently admits this in an interview about his book, The God Delusion, and he says, I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable, and I live my life on the assumption that he's not there. The assumption. So, Mark Bertrand, in his very excellent book, Rethinking Worldview, Bertrand gets it right. When he says, atheism requires faith. To live according to his faith, an atheist must be willing to reinterpret the facts to fit his prior assumption that there can be no God. That's exactly what Dawkins just admitted. Romans 1 says, we all get the same evidence. All of us. But we interpret the evidence according to what we already Believe. What are the beliefs we have before we even get to the evidence? There are pre beliefs, our presuppositions, the fundamental assumptions that we hold by faith, and we take them for granted. It's our bias, and we're not even aware of it, but we all have them, and we all evaluate the evidence according to our fundamental assumptions. There's a story you might have heard. A man believed that he was dead. And so this became awkward for his family. So one by one, they came to him and tried to convince him with all the great arguments they could think of, of why he wasn't dead, of why he's actually alive. Nothing worked. So they brought him to a doctor hoping that this medical doctor could somehow convince this man that he's not dead, because he thinks he's dead. Somehow this medical doctor will convince him he's alive. And the doctor sat down and and said to the man, let me ask you something. Do dead men bleed? And the man said, well, no. No heartbeat, no blood pumping in your veins. Dead men don't bleed. So the doctor pricked a man's finger and blood started coming out. And the man looked at it and said, Well, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. Listen. Apart from God's grace, the proofs for God's existence would make no difference to the unbeliever. Why? Not because he has other, better arguments that make sense of things. They wouldn't make a difference because they lead to a conclusion which he's already decided against. And apart from God's grace, which is plentiful and glorious and everywhere, they won't make a difference. So how do you deal with your doubts? Well, you recognize that that is what you're starting to deal with when you begin to doubt. That's the first step. When you, how do you deal with doubts? Realize that this is what we're talking about. It's never faith versus reason. It's always faith versus faith or faith versus other faith. What's the point? Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Don't just accept them. Don't just take them at face value. You have to unmask them. You have to uh, examine them and dig deep into the very foundation, the very heart of them and realize that it's really an alternate belief, that there's a faith underneath it all, that that there's an assumption you're making in your doubt. And we can discover tremendous hope for the doubter when we look at Jesus' response to this man. One commentator says in this passage, When the father of the demoniac boy cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. He was condemning his own doubt as unbelief. But his words have become a doubter's prayer for good reason. Jesus, who never responded to real unbelief, showed by answering his prayer and healing his son that he recognized it as doubt. Do you see how incredible that is. I mean, think about how Jesus didn't respond. When the man runs up and admits his doubts to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, well, you better figure things out. Go read these books. Do your research. Work through your doubts. And once you've repented of your unbelief, then I'll heal your son. That's not what happened. After the man confessed that he was caught in two minds, Jesus just heals his son. What's the point? Here's the point. When you come to Jesus, you are not saved by the quality of your faith, but by the object of your faith. When you come to Jesus, you're not saved by the quality of your faith, but by the object of your faith faith. There is a helpful illustration that makes this point, and I've traced it back to an essay by the 19th century American philosopher and psychologist William James. William James wrote an essay called The Will to Believe, and in that essay was this illustration, so we're going to give him credit, unless he himself borrowed it from someone else, in which case I'm sorry to whoever that might be, And you you might even know. You can come tell me afterwards. But for now, James gets the credit. Here's the illustration, a modified version of it. Imagine you're standing at the edge of a cliff. And a ginormous, hungry, ferocious grizzly bear is charging at you from the other side. This happens all the time in Sheboygan. And you're standing there. You have to jump. There's no other option. I mean, the other option you have is to become an afternoon snack for Mr. Grizzly Bear, you, jump, but you, you, know, uh, you have to jump, but you see a little branch sticking out the side of a cliff, uh, several feet below, a small little branch. You manage to hop down onto that branch, and for the moment, you're safe. Bear can't get you, and you're on this branch. You're not falling to your death. Now, I'm the narrator, and so I can tell you the fact is this branch is strong enough to hold you up. It won't break. It's not going to break. It's strong enough. But you don't know that at the moment, of course. Your, uh, your faith in the branch is rather weak. You doubt the strength of the branch because you're not sure it can really hold you up. So, uh, in fact, you might only be 10% sure that this little branch can save you. So here's the $4 billion question if you're only 10% sure that the branch can save you, are you then only 10% saved? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Right? You're 100% saved. Why? Because the branch is strong enough to save you, regardless of the quality of your faith in it. Christians are saved by the object of their faith, by the branch by Christ, not by the quality of their faith. Salvation is not on the basis of the quality of our faith. It is on the basis of the object. So when you struggle with doubts in the coming weeks and months, graduates or years or, or, or parents, yourselves or with your students, when you struggle with doubts as a Christian and you're working through them and you're struggling, you must not forget that. You must heed the words of John Calvin. Expounding on this passage this morning, Calvin says, as our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us as to reckon us believers on account of only a small portion of faith, because we're saved by the object, remember, It is our duty, Calvin says, in the meantime to carefully shake off the remains of infidelity which adheres to us, to strive against them, to pray to God to correct them, and as often as we're engaged in this conflict, to fly to him for aid. And by his grace, he provides aid. Because Jesus truly is Lord. The weakest faith in Jesus will be far more liberating than the strongest faith in anything else. And you all have faith this morning in Jesus or in something or someone else. And this brings us to our final point this morning. The incredibly liberating hope of the cross. Doubt ultimately is the fear of losing the face of God. Doubt ultimately leads to the fear of of losing the presence of God. Doubt ultimately leads to the fear that reality is something other than what you've been taught. That reality is something other than what you believed your whole life. What if God doesn't even exist? What if he does, but he's, he's not personal and he doesn't care about us? We're ultimately afraid of losing the face of God. Just like David expressed in Psalm 13, How long will you hide your face from me? Will you forget me forever? On the cross, Jesus actually did lose the face of God. Completely. And when you and I feel like God's not with us, we can look to Jesus and say, if he did that for me, if he lost the presence of God for me so that I could be accepted despite my imperfect faith, despite my sinful life, then I can know that he's with me even despite my struggling faith. I can know that I'm saved by the object of my faith, not the quality. One more from Guinness. For the Christian, that cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, will always have depths of meaning that the human mind can never fathom. But one thing at least it means. None of us can sink so low that God has not gone lower still. See, all of us like this boy in Mark 9, have a desperate spiritual condition. And there's nothing we can do about it. We're powerless. We can't help ourselves, but Jesus can. You see verse 27? Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And the only way that this son could stand up, liberated from spiritual darkness, is because Jesus the son was beaten down and thrown into spiritual darkness. Jesus is all about restoration. He's all about healing. But in order for restoration and healing to truly occur in us, he himself had to take on our sickness. He had to pay for it so that we no longer have to. And on the cross, Jesus suffered the spiritual isolation and rejection and darkness that we deserve. And he did it willingly for us. And because of that sacrifice, we are freely offered the spiritual liberation we all crave. That's why in Colossians 1, Paul says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins if you really understand all this if you truly believe this then when you go through times of doubt it can really be an opportunity for growth You won't freak out about the fact that you're having them. You'll look at your foundations. You'll look at your fundamental assumptions and you'll make your decisions and you'll see a God that is bigger And more powerful than the God you used to believe in. You'll see a gospel that is so much bigger and so much more powerful than the gospel you used to believe in. Your understanding of the gospel will increase. You will be caused to rely on the finished work of Christ alone for salvation even more. And you'll allow your doubts to move you into a greater, stronger faith. Because... You know you're saved by grace, not by your own purity. Look at the cross. Look at the infinite cost of our salvation. Look at the infinite love God has for us in sparing us his wrath because his son took it instead and then three days later walks out of a tomb proving that this eternal, incredibly sovereign work was complete, and he has indeed risen, and it is indeed complete, and forgiveness and spiritual liberation is indeed done. If we'll only accept it. What is more liberating than that? There is no greater hope. So as we pray now, I'll invite our worship team to come forward for a closing song as we once again celebrate our graduates and celebrate the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these graduates and others who are not here right now. We thank you that you have worked in their lives, that you've worked in their families. And Father, we thank you for the For the uh, way we can see Jesus Christ interacting with broken, sinful, doubting people. And we can see how the first step to salvation is not getting our act together. It's not becoming better than we are now. No, the first step to salvation, as we see, is admitting our weakness. Admitting that we don't have it all together. And only then are we even able to look at the cross and cling to that as our only hope. Father, I pray for these students as they go off in the coming weeks and months and years. Some will experience doubt. Others will have vibrant spiritual lives in Christ by your grace. And there are different seasons and, and, and some of their parents will freak out when they come home with big questions and other parents will not be so concerned. And Father, we just pray that as a church family, you enable us and help us to think very critically and honestly about our doubts. Help us to look always to our foundation uh, in scripture. And Father, by your spirit, will you lead us into stronger faith every day because because, uh, uh, of the gospel and as our understanding of that good news increases. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.